ever felt frustrated and helpless after listening and doing everything your vet told you to do, but it only made your sick pet worse and not get any better? That's me in 2008 with my first adopted cat, Meow. I did everything the vet told me to do and I realised she wasn't getting any better and only worse. So I decided to look into alternative health options and was drawn to the stories of holistic pet service entrepreneurs and their transformative journey, overcoming obstacles, chasing their passion and creating a movement that has caused a ripple effect of positive change in the lives of their clients and pets around the world. Join me as I share the raw, inspiring journeys of these amazing entrepreneurs, their successes and failures. My name is Amrys Wang and this is The Raw Entrepreneur. Good morning, afternoon, evening, wherever you are in the world right now. This is Amrys Wang of The Raw Entrepreneur. Today's episode is with Dr. Connor Brady, author of Feeding Dogs, Dry or Raw, The Science Behind the Debate, and founder of Dogs First in Ireland. I've given my vet a copy of his book, hoping that it will help open up the minds of more vets in Singapore. I love this interview for oh so many reasons. His lyrical Irish charm and the gift of the gap definitely made me miss my UK days. This is his story. Who is Dr. Connor Brady? Oh, great. I love talking about myself. <laughs> Nobody ever asks that question. Um, who is uh, Dr. Connor Brady? Well, ooh, I don't know. Um, where do I start? Do I start as a young, young kid? I was about, um, I always had this at the start of my book. I kind of get into a little bit of it, but I didn't want it to be that sort of book. But, you know, I always was attached to my dogs, very, very close to them. I don't know why, but I was a very doggy kid from young. I was the youngest of five brothers and my older brothers were off doing things. And I was the baby that was kind of a little bit annoying. So I think by the time I was 11 or 12, my mum thought I was acting up and being a bit of a, a bit of a 12 year old boy and thought, well, this guy would uh, benefit from spending a bit of time in uh, picking up poo in the animal shelters. So initially I thought, oh, mum, what? So I get to the I get to the local animal shelter, which is a 45 minute drive from where I am. And my mum used to drive me there or dad, sometimes my, one of my brothers would drive me there and wait for two hours while they picked up all the poo and did the work and then brought me home again. Like that's a serious investment of their time, but purely because they wanted me to get involved with something that uh, that, was, that wasn't just, you know, sports and um, acting the maggot, as we say over here. So, um, yeah, so I, I really fell in with, the, with that from a young age and I saw the dogs coming in. So I was exposed to it from a very young age that this isn't fair, people. You get turned up for work on Saturday morning and there's dogs tied to the outside of the animal shelter. And you know that this is wrong. There's something wrong with society that we do this, particularly old dogs, people, particularly over here. I'm not sure about in Singapore, but over here, people will abandon an old dog to get a new dog. So they just leave their. I mean, can you think of any they should find those people? And, you know, that is just not not right to do that to a dog that's been living with you. So that was the start. And then from in there, I went into college, did zoology in college and and uh, did a doctorate in nutrition and behavior. And that was the start of me kind of getting in with animals and wasn't quite sure if I wanted to be a vet. I don't think I had the smarts to, you have to get nearly full points in your in your exiting school exams. We call it the leaving cert. And you have to get nearly full points. I mean, complete nerd level 100, like just, in, and I was never gonna be that. I was always too much messing around. So uh, yeah, so I think I went another way and then I went into guide dogs for a few years and. That was my entrance into the doggy world. I'm lucky to, since starting with guide dogs, and then I left guide dogs to get into pets full time, pet food manufacturing, then lecturing and that kind of stuff. I'm lucky to be getting paid for it now, just about, you know, with the little bits and pieces you try to do. So I'm in a pretty good position now, but it's been a very long road. Like I'm 40 now, and for the last 10 years, it's just been you know, living hand to mouth, trying to make raw dog food work in Ireland. There was no market for it in Ireland. People didn't want ground up fish in a tube, you know, in the middle of a football field in the rain. And I'm saying, do you want some fish? And they're like, what? Not for the dogs. No, they eat dry food. You're going to kill them. Uh, so, you know, it has been difficult, but now I, I can see the sea changes happening and, and it's becoming easier to chat to people. And now people are picking up what you're putting down a lot easier. And so it's becoming 
easier these days, but uh, it's been a bit of a slog. But I'm sure you know that yourself, working with pets, you know, working with animals, not easy. Not an easy <laughs> field to be in. So that was the start of it. That's the, the background to me, really, yeah. So why, okay, so you started with guide dogs, you said. So yeah. what, um, how did you get into that? Uh, um, I was away. I left after my doctorate. I did the doctorate. I got it done pretty quickly. And I just said, I, that's enough of that. And I ran away to South America for a year with my friend, with three friends. And uh, we did the whole South America. They call it the Gringo Trail. So it's, uh, you just start at the bottom and you make your way up through the countries. And it was great fun. And after a year of that, of, you know, growing my hair long and my beard, and I was like, I came back going, my God, what am I going to do with my life? Nobody really wants you. If you do a doctorate, people think, oh, this is, you're so specialized. But you are, you're too specialized. Like you specialize into a tiny, tiny field of one particular subject in science. And you come out and people don't really want that experience. And so I was a bit lost. And then this ad for guide dogs came up. My girlfriend at the time, I was still doing bits and pieces with dogs, doing a bit of training. They said, oh, guide dogs is for you. And so I joined and became a pup supervisor. And uh, that's where you're looking after the families that train the pups for the first year of their life. So you're, you are, you're a, a trainer of 30, 40 puppies and you present a relatively well-trained dog to the guide dog trainers at a year old. So they have something to work with and then they can sculpt it into a guide dog. So that was my time with Irish guide dogs. But then I got a job in Australian guide dogs um, because it's nice walking around in the sunshine as opposed to the lashing, eternally cold weather in Ireland. And uh, I was a guide dog trainer over there. And it was when I bumped into Brisbane guide dogs, uh, which this unbelievable CEO, Chris Lane, her name was. And she had noticed that this raw food trend was happening. Ian Billenhurst's Tom Lonsdale, top vets in the nutritional world, the, the kind of uh, raw dog fathers. But um, they, there are Aussie vets. So Brisbane guide dogs, Chris Lane, the CEO, saw what was happening with this raw and said, let's have a go and see if it works. Just all we ask. It's all we ask of vets and anybody that doubts us. Just, just try feed your dog real food for a week and tell me I'm mad. Don't just tell me it's wrong. You know, be a scientist and, and, and do an experiment. So she did an experiment and she had 200 training dogs and she changed them to raw food. And the difference was just like overnight you know, completely different dogs. Anybody that changes dogs to raw food usually has these stories, you know, oh, their coat is unbelievable or their behavior is calm or the poos are lovely or the recurring skin in good condition evaporated. Brisbane guide dogs veterinary bills fell by 80% in the first year or two. So a huge saving for a, a charity organization with 200 strong training dogs. And then they branded their own raw dog food because anybody would buy dog food with a guide dog on the front. But if it's good enough for guide dogs, it's good enough for my little pookums. And so they just started making money free. Now they have free food, very little vet bills and the business is doing great. And uh, to cut a long story short, she was then fired on uh, the 1st of January in 2015. And her replacement came in, stopped the raw food, stopped the linking to the raw dog food product with her name on it and reinstated dry food to the population. And I just thought that was so wrong, it was so insidious. Um, I have testimony from Chris Lane and many of the staff that's what, what happened with that. Um, and I just thought, well, if the dogs were doing, if they were healthier on raw food, putting them back on dry, increasing vet bills was harmful for the dogs, in my opinion, I have to say. So I had a big problem with that. I went to my superiors and I said, look what these guys are doing. This is just phenomenal. You know, we've got to jump to raw. And they said, no, neither we nor our vets agree with what you're saying. And I said, well, it's not about agreeing. It's like, look at the data here. Look at what they're doing. So I hated the anti-science bit of it. And I said, I'll show you. So I, I got the hump and I, and I quit my job. And next thing I know, and I'm at home, and like, you know, a quick few tears. I was like, geez, what am I going to do now? You know, and I said, right, back to research. I'm going to show you that you're, what you're doing is wrong. So 10 years later, then get the book out and they don't read it so <laughs> i'm not really showing them anything but anyway you know it's been a process wow this book um i've got your book and i love your book it's ah, it's thanks. Thanks, Thomas. it's it's phenomenal and when i showed it to my vet um she was impressed because she was like wow you mean honestly they, they didn't even know this book existed yeah. So I said, you know, I said like, you know, I'm not trying to convert you anything. 
but I would like you to read this and and think about it, you know. Yeah. And because they know that I'm a community cat caregiver in Singapore okay. and I do feed raw or at least a mix of wet and raw. Yeah, cool. And um the vet that I go to, she is open to the idea of it, though she doesn't oh, do it herself. That's so okay. I said, so I said, like, you know. Honestly, I would I would love for you to read these books and come up with your own conclusion. Yeah. Uh, what helps is that they actually do sell raw food now. They have a little uh, chiller, um, yeah. chest freezer in the main branch where they sell raw food. And okay. I was amazed because I remember like years back when I first got to know them, that idea would not would not fly. Yeah. Great, so, that's good to hear. Things are changing. I'm not sure yeah. how fast, but mm. if my mind is that if um, they have uh, four practicing vets in that clinic and lots of vet techs, you know, so like if if the books are available to everyone to read, um, that's yeah. a start, you know, for yeah. me. Yeah, that's good on you. And, and like, thanks so much for doing that. Like to, like, you know, it's so encouraging to meet people like you who are taking it on, on their own volition to go and actually i'm going to buy this book with my own money it's not cheap the book it's not i realize that and you buy the book and then you just gift it to your vet who you know potentially mightn't even read it they might use it to hold open the door and you know and you go, go and do that i mean hats off to you like that was just so cool and particularly when you're working with a charity and that money could have gone to some other very useful cause so I love hearing that. It's very encouraging that the vets, yeah, you do see this more and more vets have a small little chest freezer in the clinic because I think it, it will come a time, this happened with the bottled milk versus kind of breast milk debate where, you know, they tried to push that bottled milk was better than breast milk. Mm-hmm. It'd be great if they just started off saying, here's a, here's a good substitute and your baby will be okay. Breast milk is better, but, you know, bottled milk will be, will be fine for lots of people that need it. Instead, they went with the approach of this is better than mother nature. And it took a ferocious amount of time and science from independent people and money, huge amounts of money, but mainly time to prove them wrong. So the point is that they brought that product to kind of market and we had to kind of prove what they were doing was was wrong. And they weren't going to shift until then. And they only started shifting that opinion when the public response became so negative to the story they were putting out. And I think that's unfortunately for them because they have a very stressful uh, uh, a profession. They're already under mega stress. We know every single report says they've got dire, bad mental health issues in places. Uh, they work so hard in school to get to college. They work so hard in college to get to practice. And then they're overworked in practice, trying to be Dr. Doodle to every animal on the planet, master of all science subjects. It's just impossible. You know, if a GP can't do it with one animal, they can't do it with the entire animal kingdom. So, so what they're finding is there's a negative response now from people about not just nutrition and um, because the person coming in is generally better versed than they are in the subject. Certainly if they're warning them away from fresh food, that's a bad approach to take. This person knows more than you, but also then the person, when you get on the natural kind of bandwagon, you start to look at, does my dog really need flea treatments if he doesn't have fleas? Does he need monthly wormers? Can I not just send his poo check off? Does he need annual vaccinations if he's already adequately vaccinated? Questions after questions. And then suddenly the trust in the vets kind of plummet. So I believe the vets are now starting to stock a little bit of all because the weight of public opinion will become so negative that customers will speak with their feet and say, I am not going to go to a vet that makes me feel stupid for feeding real food to my animal that I adore. You know, we're having less babies, all of us here. Now we're spending more time, more effort, treating the animal like like it bloody deserves you know it's like treating like one of your kids it's like treating them like a living sentient human being that needs good food if i worked in the zoo i'd feed them better food than that so i think vets are now starting to have these little freezers for the you know the those customers that they don't want to lose and so that's what changes it it's not change from above where the vets go oh we've got new science on stone tablets here you go handed to us by some bearded lady yeah. you know it's just this it, it's a change from the bottom jim morrison said it best from the doors i always say this line they've got the guns but we've got the numbers <laughs> like they've they've got the power they got the money they've got the science okay they hold the science in inverted commas and it's given to you it's rammed down your neck but ultimately we're the ones with the cash we are the public and that's what they're after and if we don't pick up what they're putting down if we don't buy what they're selling then that's it the game changes completely and that's what happened with breast and bottom milk 
Nestle particularly eventually realized if we keep pushing this message, they're going to turn off this. They were the most boycotted company for two decades because mm. of this. And if they didn't change tax soon, they would have their cash flow would have been destroyed. So they change and go, of course, breast milk is better. But if you do, do choose to follow on. So that's the message now. And that will be the message with dry food. It'll be, of course, fresh food is important. But if you're, you know, ever felt that it's a bit lazy or whatever, there'll always be a role for dry food. People will always need a bit of it here and there. You're going on holidays. Who cares? You know, but the message will change slowly. So I'm happy to hear about that freezer. That is the start of the, yeah. of the change. I, I think, I think with a lot of um, conventional vet clinics, um, especially in Singapore, they, they are so used to whatever they were taught in school. So yeah. it's the annual vaccine. So there is a tried and tested business model for vet clinics yeah, when they yeah. first come out, Definitely. you know, and I think the challenge for them with all this, um, integrative holistic approach that's coming out from you know from pet parents coming forward um the movement it's that you know how i think there's some vets who are who might feel a bit threatened by what no more annual vaccination because that's what that's like bread and butter to them yeah yeah you know definitely and it's more, of, I, I think it's like, how can we engage our, our vets and, and show them that, hey, there is a way to make money, you know, yeah. for you as a wellness center, as a more yeah. proactive Ooh, like wellness that. center versus yeah. uh, playing um, defense every, every yeah. single time yeah. and losing and losing. I mean, like yeah. I have spoken to so many pet parents where they get so frustrated, you know, my dog or my cat has all these skin problems, especially dogs. You know, yeah. um, they keep going to the vet for the same medication or stronger yeah. medication and yeah. it doesn't resolve, you know, no. and and those who like me hit their head enough times, they sort of say, okay, enough's enough. Let's look at something. What else yeah. is there? Yeah, this is not working. This, this is, is not, not working. working. We have to think out of the box, <laughs> yeah. you know, even yeah. if it brings us down a rabbit hole, which we don't even know yeah. where we're going, we have yeah, to yeah. try and find a way, yeah. Yeah. you know, but there are some parents who don't, think you know yeah and and some vets and for me for me personally it's like i would like to reach out to that segment yeah who who are still banging their head you know yeah. or you know and especially vet places like hey you know there there is stuff like feeding dogs the book or the forever dog yeah. or, you know all these all these awesome um writers and they are showing a, a different way of treatment yeah yeah. You know. I think I think like in relation to the first bit you said there there's a um there is a threat definitely a um a financial threat to you know putting vets wouldn't like to admit to this because that would admit that their money comes before a decision of of good health. So I I have to assume that the vast majority of vets get into veterinary because they love animals and the vast majority when they're giving you this incorrect information do mean the best. They do believe that raw is going to kill your dog or your baby and uh, they do believe that annual vaccinations was a good idea. Now in hindsight it's just so preposterous there wasn't a single study to suggest the vaccines wore off only challenge studies to show they lasted a long time so they completely fell for the reps nonsense the the, the drug reps nonsense and so they don't want to admit maybe to themselves that there's a serious financial impetus for them to believe this nonsense their mortgage does depend on the on the animal coming into them every year and so you you can fall for things a lot when your mortgage depends on it you can do were wrong things when you really need that money so that's absolute fact but i think that uh, vets at the moment would do well to look at the likes of wiley vets w-y-l-i-e wiley vets in essex in the uk and these guys completely flipped the veterinary uh, really the health kind of uh, paradigm what they said was instead of a vet that says we will treat your animal when it's sick. Like you said, treat the symptoms, never the cause. Keep on treating them with anti-inflammatories and, and non-steroid anti-inflammatories and antibiotics, you know, repeatedly, but never address the cause of, of the condition. Um, they flipped us and they said, look, guys, you are spending money on pet insurance. If you give us your pet insurance money, give or take a few quid, then we will look after your pet no matter what. So instead of paying it to a strange pet insurance company who don't pay out three quarters of the time because they're rotten to the core, 
Um, so instead of wasting your money with them, why don't you pay us? Because they had enough vets there to be kind of well able to offer the service. And so they, they took on almost like a health model. So what Wally Vets did overnight was as soon as they were in charge of the health of the animal, they said to be part of this plan, you can't feed dry food. You can't use regular flea treatments. You can't use regular wormers and you're not to use annual boosters. Overnight, the health information changed from use this, all this and as much as you can of this all the time to if you want to avail of our health plan, we don't want you to use that because Wiley Vets make more money when your pet is healthy. So this flipped it. Suddenly, Wiley Vets are encouraged to keep your pet healthy. And it's like, well, how do we keep these pets healthy? Stop feeding them dry food. They've got 24 vets working for them now, and they're all promoting raw feeding. If you promote dry food, you can't have a job with Wiley Vets. You have to be raw feeding uh, or dry feeding for no longer than a year because the damage is lasting. So all these rules come in, exactly the stuff that we knew was happening from Brisbane Guide Dogs, they're now implementing. So veterinary clinics can definitely make a business out of this. They can take on what Wiley Vets are doing and replicate it themselves. You can sell natural treatments for fleas, natural treatments for worms, stop decimating the rivers and water table with these uh, nematode killing animals that are poisoning the environment. You know, um, vaccinations, you can do uh, vaccine checks of the blood to make sure the antibodies are still there. You can sell raw dog food. You can sell all sorts of therapies and herbs, and you can still do conventional medicine because it's not like, like the way people say you're an anti-vaxxer. If you have a question about vaccines, you're an anti-vaxxer. Like, you know, I have a problem with the opioid crisis. It doesn't make me anti-opioids. I had my knee operation three times. Believe me, opioids are fantastic. Love them. Uh, so I'm not anti-opioids because I hate the fact 60,000 Americans a year are dying because of this disgusting scandal from Big Pharma, nor am I anti-vaccine just because I think your pet doesn't need annual vaccines all the time. So I think there's potential here for, and it, it has to change, it will change eventually, but I think there's potential here for regular conventional vets to keep the conventional stuff for when it's needed. We all need that stuff. God knows Non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, incredible drugs. Antibiotics, very useful, but we've overused them. We've overplayed our hand with antibiotics, and now we've got superbugs. And we are, we are losing this golden treatment, the one drug that I could name that actually fixes you, antibiotics, that it's now getting weaker as a tool because we've overplayed our hand with antibiotics. And now we have ads on the radio begging us to stop anti using antibiotics like we're buying them in the news agents. The doctor is prescribing them to me. So, um, so I think there's a, a balance will come where they start to have the freezer there selling a bit of raw, some natural flea treatments as well as conventional. They're the same price. They're not cheaper. Herbs aren't cheap, you know, so there'll be a crossover where they're not going to lose money. They will have healthier pets and there will be less vets per pet over time. I think in the last 20 years, it's gone from 1.1, 1.2 vets per whatever measurement I did to now two vets per pet in just two decades. In other words, not only is chronic disease spiraling in pets, but we have more and more vets to treat these illnesses. But pet ownership in that time in Europe and the US has been relatively stable, but the increase on in vets is, is off the charts. So I think we do have too many vets. We have too many pharmacies in every town. Pharmacies, in, like in my hometown here in Greystones, we've got eight pharmacies. Pharmacies are for when you get sick. They dispense drugs for when you're sick. So you've got this timeline of health from zero to like, you know, a hundred percent and i always think like you know from zero to 80 you're perfectly healthy now it's decreasing you get and you're getting sicker along this kind of scale up to maybe 80 percent and then suddenly if you don't look after your health you're going to slip into that 80 to 90 95 percent where you're in trouble and then boom 100 percent you're dead so i think you have this scale of health that we ignore when we're healthy and when we get sick we go and look for meds so you know vets will have to shift to looking after the person's health because that's an untapped untapped business model stopping animals getting obese uh, real health checks showing them how to clean their teeth and selling raw meaty bones and you know wellness and working on the anxiety of dogs and the training and making sure that the breeding is okay and giving people advice opening up a little center for puppies to engage properly and on and on and on like the actual wellness of an animal is suddenly a business model that could be attractive to people as opposed to just selling medicine which is only working out for you know big pharma who i have a bit of a problem with um especially these days i <laughs> yeah. i hear you i hear you and i yeah. love i love what you suggest wiley vets i'm gonna check them out w-y-l-i-e that's the one okay and and they are based in the uk 
or in, in Ireland? UK, in Essex, okay. yeah. They Essex. Have, okay. They have, they've got two large hospitals now at the top and bottom of Essex. Essex is a huge, big uh, region of, of, of the UK. But they dominate, and apparently they're sucking in clients from 100 miles away. So they're adding new vets all the time to deal with all the new clients, and they're sucking in clients. So what's happening is any conventional vets near Wiley's are losing customers to them. Because wow. people are attracted by the idea, you're going to keep my pet healthy. And it doesn't cost you any more than pet insurance. And they give money off raw dog food because they want to buy in their raw dog food. So now you're buying raw dog food from them to prove you're on raw to keep on your health plan. But they've increased their bottom line by doing it. So there's lots of clever ways to do it. Oh, that's a cutting it. plan. That's a cutting yeah. plan. That is. Yeah, it is. That is Isn't so it? cool. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and I don't think it's positive as well. It's, it's a positive experience. I think deep down, vets don't want to, of course, vets don't want to see the animal unhealthy. They don't want to see you every month. They'd like to see you every year, but they don't want to see you. They don't want to see an animal suffering, a, pet, uh, 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 a client coming in very stressed with them, giving out to them, you know, and them de- defending themselves. And now they've got the whole raw thing to, like, I saw a great post by a, a doctor guy that uh, my friend Nick follows, and it said, um, it said, isn't it strange that human GPs, human doctors spend less than 20 hours in their entire medical training on nutrition and then spend the rest of their life dealing with the disease from bad nutrition? And yeah. I thought, wow, that's a killer line. Same with vets. They don't have a clue about nutrition. They don't understand the They don't understand the role of carbohydrates in us or they wouldn't feed them to overweight pets. They don't understand the role of protein in kidney disease or they wouldn't keep on talking about lowering protein in early kidney disease. They don't understand that carbohydrates cause pancreatitis, not fat. They don't understand that carbohydrates are fueling the cancer epidemic in pets. Dogs are 10 times more likely to get cancer than humans. 10 times. Yeah. And I don't use that daily. That is backed up by solid, solid, solid. And we know the carbohydrates fuel cancer. Tumors need insulin. They need sugar and sugar spikes insulin and they need insulin. That's how we find tumors in the body. We make the person drink a radioactive cola and uh, they drink it and then they they track and see where all the sugar went and the tumors light up because there's loads of receptors for insulin and so that's how you see it it's called a pet scan and so we know carbohydrate when you feed less carbohydrates to a dog with cancer they suffer less cancer so we know these things but yet vets don't you know how do they not know these things they, but they spend all their time recommending meds to control the condition that was fueled by the crap food they're recommending on the way out the door so it's a little bit of a mental kind of uh, block there, but it's all because of the lessons they're getting in college. It's not their fault. It's the yeah. insidious role of cash from the figures, you know, and perhaps loose science and we have this beautiful scientific tool, science phone, and now it's being corrupted and it's becoming a bit of a, you just don't, can't trust what you're reading anymore. You can't trust the studies, one in two of them in our top journals are false in the new england journal of medicine and lancet the two editors of those two top prestigious journals said one in two of the studies produced published in our journals the top ones uh, most peer-reviewed studies to get in there are false not just mistaken or there was, oh, that was a bit of a mistake in the stats false misleading nonsense and they, that they published imagine in the lower journals that are just delighted Pfizer approached them to produce a study you know so we have a big problem with the with the anyway i'm going off when i don't want to keep saying negative stuff about pharma but um yeah anyway i'll, I'll well, stop there on that no that's okay i i love your passion i think that's that's why yeah. you know um it shows in the book that you produce um with you know writing a book that you wrote feeding dogs um did you say it took 10 years how, how many years did it yeah. take for you wow 10 years 10 years and and nearly marriage like but uh, it's it's hard to explain to people when you're in research and you know, if i'm going to say something every line no matter like this is the this, i realize now that the training a doctorate gives you a master's doctorate even a degree a degree a, a degree probably doesn't make you think for yourself in a degree you are handed the lectures and you're handed the course information and you learn it just like school you're just free to attend the lectures or not. That's the only difference, really. But it is, you're not thinking for yourself. It's really when you get to master's that you start looking at a topic and, and, and a doctorate where you're just on your own. And it's like, is does this happen? Go find out. And it's like, oh, my God. So you, you're, you're kind of made think for yourself and you're made investigate and you're made critique things and ask yourself questions and look at a problem from every single angle. 
So that's what it teaches you. It teaches you to leave your head at the door and your own bias as much as you can, impossible to leave it all there, and look at this problem from as many angles and find out who has said what, you know, how many studies in support of each point, and build a whole big argument around it. And then a, a very simple couple of at the end, was it or wasn't it? So in the middle, the huge approach to our question. So when we take on, a, like the book is divided into four, and the first section is, is the dog a carnivore or omnivore? You know, if he's a meat eater or, you know, if he eats a little bit of plant matter, how much plant matter? And does eating a very small amount of plant matter make you an omnivore? And all this stuff is so confusing. Like, what do the diet studies say when you let dogs off the lead to do their own thing? What do they eat? And so all that is just mishmashed and confused. And people take a single study from here and go, oh, look, he ate lots of stuff here. And it's like, yeah, he was living beside a bakery. He just ate bakery products. That doesn't mean he just eats donuts all day. So uh, you kind of have to tease all that apart. But that question alone, I would have, when I first started, that was the thing I started with. Uh, because I know diet studies and I know digestive stuff. That's what the doctorate was on. And so I said, I'll start there. The digestive morphology of the dog. What can he digest? What's the biologist say? What are the diet studies saying? Evolution, all that stuff. So that first section alone took me about maybe three or four years. I thought that was going to be the book. But then I was like, buddy, hell, he's a meat eater. How the hell you do well on 56% carbohydrates? How is that possible? We eat 30% carbohydrates from the wrong sources. We get fast. That's it. You're on the road to fat bill. How are they getting away with this? And then I thought, well, there is an obesity crisis. Maybe they're not. So I went into obesity. And from obesity, then you just get into like everything. You know, carbohydrates are just the cancer thing took me ages. And, you know, it's just so complicated. And then there's very little action. Then I said, well, what science are the vets basing their carbohydrate conclusions on? So into the veterinary libraries and look up everything that they could possibly have on. Why are you feeding carbohydrates to dogs? Where's the studies to show this is a good idea or safe? And there's just nothing. There's just nothing. There's like a short little paragraph in this behemoth of a book. And it's it's like this is not a study of of a long term study of, of a big population of dogs fed carbs or protein. This is ridiculous. Where is the evidence? And you get talking to vets and then the vets don't have answers. So now I'm moving on from all the issues with dry food, carbohydrates, crap protein, stale fats, chemical abuse, like all this inert food. They're proudly like saying this is proudly chemically inert. Are you mad? You know, what do you think? How, what effect is that going to have on your gut floor? But it's when you start talking to vets about these issues and they have zero answers. They're just like, but this book says it's good. And it's like that book is written by Colgate Palmolive. They make Hills pet food. They give you your lectures. So uh, have you read anything else aside that that nutritional book written by a couple of clowns? And they haven't. So now there's a third section that's like, how are vets so, so um, accepting of such a nonsense product made by a candy manufacturer? Do you know what I mean? Maher's mm. product. And so that was the third section. And then I had to do a fourth section, which was, okay, what do we feed dogs? And that, but that section wrote itself because it's quite obvious. It's just, you know, there's no exact answer to this. It's once you take the pressure off and go, you have no idea what your RDA of zinc is. You don't know how much selenium you, you need. You don't know where you got it from. You have no idea of how much calcium your kids need. You know, you would think that would be really important. It isn't dogs, terribly important. And yet you don't know for your own kids, what sort of a parent are you? And you go, geez, I don't know the answer to that. All I know is mum told me to not eat a lot of crap and eat as much vegetables and fruit and a bit of good quality meat when I can. And it's like, okay, that's what I do. And you're doing fine. It's the same for your dog, just a meatier food pyramid. So you can take the pressure off people going, don't be worrying, it's simple. That was the fourth section. That was enjoyable. The other three were hell. So, hard. so yeah. how did you survive for 10 years to write this book? Because, you know, did you have like your family or your friends say, yeah. Connor, what the hell are you doing? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. My mother. Bloody hell. Like, I mean, you talk to Irish men, we get with Irish men and their mums. OK, so I don't know what it is. But like my mum would be saying regularly, what are you doing? What What are you talking about? Look, what, I, I, I borrowed. I had 50,000 euro. I borrowed 50,000. I needed 100,000 euro to set up this raw dog food plant in Ireland. And my mom was saying, what are you doing that for? What? Like, nobody wants that product. And like, everybody feeds dry food, Connor. It's not a conspiracy. You know, it's a drive. Everyone feeds dry food. All these vets are wrong and you're right. Why do you have to be so different? 
And it was only years later after the product does well. And I was on TV on this show called Dragon's Den. You probably have an equivalent in Singapore. And uh, it was only when my mum was walking down the beach, she bumped into some guy with two dogs and he happened to be feeding them, you know, real food of some kind. And she came back to me four or five years into this process. Now I've got the doctorate. I've got the, the bloody product doing well. I've been on TV and I'm making a difference. And then my mum comes up to me one day. She goes, Connor, you'll never believe it. I met a guy on the beach and he has two dogs and he feeds them real food too. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, so, so what mum? And she goes, so there you go. Like, you're like, you're not an idiot. And it's like, Jesus, what, how is that? So, but that's the, look, I don't know why I'm going into my relationship with my mother here, but, uh, but here's, the, so she would definitely have been of the ilk, like, you know, just get a normal job and stop stressing yourself out. Uh, and, and a lot of people around me, because I would have been desperately broke for most of that time, the product wasn't selling as well as it should. I was selling it too cheap. I want to make a difference. And so everybody can buy the product at the right price. Wrong. If your business doesn't make money, you're going to die. So that's it. You're, you're, you won't make a difference if your business closes. I wasn't ruthless enough to understand that. So I was very stressed at that. Then I started helping other companies get their products off the ground, but undervaluing my role there. I got out the front and said, look, you know, I'm helping them grow this business from zero to hero but really i was undervaluing myself working so hard and really doing it for somebody else because i was afraid to do it myself again so luckily i have a wife who is an accountant and she has a good job and when my money fell below uh, you know critical levels and i couldn't feed myself and she found finds out uh, then i was able to say look i can't meet half the mortgage this this month and that's that and she was like okay you know we well, on we go and as absolute patient as she was, and she was like 10 years is a long time for that to be, there was periods of money as well. Things happen and things go well. I now I'm in an okay position. I've got various things on the, on the hop, but for a good few years, it was very, very stressful, very demoralizing and very few people, your friends don't know what you're doing. Your family don't understand it. Your wife doesn't really want to hear you your, your sad stories every day you know it becomes like jesus will you just get a job you're very employable just get a job with a nutrition company and it's like no i'm telling you i'm i want to do it this way i can't work for somebody else now it's too i'm too far in the hole the rabbit hole i'm not coming out i'm stuck and uh so it's you know that is very very difficult and if you don't have if i didn't have the support i never would have got that book out so i do say at the start of the book like, i am so privileged i'm in a country where they I can do a doctorate for free. I got a college for free. I can choose to do a doctorate. I could back in the day. Things are a bit more difficult now, but it's not expensive here to do it. So we're in such a privileged, disgustingly privileged way that I have enough food. I can live and I can go to college and get a doctorate. Uh, and I'm not exactly the most intelligent guy in the room. Believe me, some of those people in there would be like, they're so smart. You can feel them thinking it's like, Jesus, they're just, you know, it's intimidating. But, uh, and so, and then my wife had a good job, which took the pressure off me and we delayed having kids for a few years. And when we did have them, then I was just starting to get comfortable, you know, that I could actually meet the wages every month without stressing. So yeah, no, people don't see that side of it. It's a good question. Like making money in, in animals is hard, particularly when you give a shit and you don't want to produce a crap product. I could stick my name now on a crap dry pet food product and ship it anywhere in Ireland and the UK and make lots of money. Raw dog food is difficult because it's hard. It's hard to ship. It's not, a, it's not an easy product to do. Uh, but, you know, I have done it as well as I can to, and kept it as regular as I can. And uh, then you get a bit of fame and then, you know, people start coming and getting consults and stuff. But for everybody else, there's, for every one of me, there's 10 people that couldn't do it. Perfectly good canine nutritionist that, you know, can't keep enough business coming in the door for them to to get the business off the ground you know and uh, that's the way they do it they stifle you and they keep you down because they don't want this message coming out you know thankfully social media doesn't silence us talking about pets we can say whatever we want unlike in other fields where they do curtail what you can say depending on what the man tells you you can say or can't say so luckily with social media we can talk and say what we want about pets and there, that's why this raw movement is just exploding, because we can say what we want. People are free to listen. People aren't stupid. We're all as intelligent as each other. We're just good at different things. But everybody knows a true story when they hear it. It's a fact. You just hear the message and you go, Jesus, that is true. That's just there's just no doubting a person sometimes. And everybody that speaks about raw food has the same 
inclination from you, me, anybody I've met. You just know it's the truth as soon as you talk to them. So uh, that comes so, out. So what would you say was the biggest lesson you learned? Because you said you started your own raw food business, you know. Mm. Um, Good questions. <laughs> uh, biggest lesson I learned, I, like I had a, a lot of, I think the, the, the mistakes are the biggest lessons. You have to learn from your mistakes. There's a great book called Black Box Thinking by Syed, Richard Syed. And he also has done a book called Bounce, which is unbelievable. So interesting. Black Box Thinking is all about this, the difference between pilots making mistakes and healthcare professionals making mistakes. Really, really interesting stuff all through it. But um, I think my my biggest, some of my biggest lessons were from my mistakes. Like uh, I remember one day somebody told me there was a monk a kind of a strange little old man living in the mountains where I, I live in, Wick, in Wicklow, which is a mountainy part of Ireland. And uh, I heard there's a monk in the forest and he's shipping in these huge statues from India. He just liked doing it. And uh, they said, go meet this little large monk. And he was a priest. And then he went over to India to be a Buddhist monk. And now he's back here doing weird stuff in a forest. So I said, sounds like my sort of day. So I went out there at my wife and walking around the forest and looking at these huge statues. And we get to his little shop his little gift shop and there's nobody around and i said to my wife you know i could just i could just steal anything from this shop there's just nobody around and a little old man comes out with a little cane he looked like he looks so irish just little old and he goes i would you want it's a tax dodge and i'm tax dodge he goes, oh, i'm just trying to get these studies in and have a little shop and pretend the time man and i said are you the economist slash priest slash monk and he goes yeah 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 he goes what do you do son started telling him i had this dog food company i'm trying to get it off the ground and he goes why and I said, well, I just, you know, I want to make a difference. What they're fe being fed is wrong. When they feed my product, they'll be healthier. They'll see that till they want more of it. I just want to want to do something like that. I want to, I want to get the man and prove them right. And he goes, you're going to fail. And I was like, what? Who are you to say that to me? What do you know? And he goes, what price are you selling the food for? And before I even answered, he goes, you're too cheap. And as soon as he said it, I knew he was right. And I was just about to tell him the price. And it was like three euro 50 a kilo trying to compete with dry food. And I, I realized instantly I was just way too cheap. And he goes, whatever you're going to tell me, it's too cheap because you think you're trying to make a difference. And, you know, and everyone gets a fair price. And he goes, that's not how business works. If you're going to enter business and try and make a difference with a business, with a product, you have to start businesses making. And your product has to make money. Your company has to make money. You have to get paid so you can eat the mortgage so you don't die of stress. You know, he says, you have to do all these things and you will not be the person to get that product to where it needs to be. And it's like, oh my God. So he goes, I highly recommend you find someone to run your company and you just be the face of it and do your talking stuff about talking why dogs are great. And this is good food for dogs. He says, but don't run your own company because you don't have the, you don't have that sort of stuff in you. And it's like, like I was like, I was so appalled. It's like, I've just been on the TV. I've got a doctorate. I'm really smart. And two years later, he was totally right. My business started going into the ground. I was busier than ever but I just couldn't maintain enough payments for the lads uh, and I couldn't get new machinery in quick enough. The, the quality of the product was so good, but I couldn't convince the market that, you know, that's why all dry food is crap. There isn't really a good dry food because they're being compared to crap. So there's no reward for using good quality chicken, outdoor reared turkey, you know, less carbs because everybody's using the same the, the little amount. Anyway, so that was a lesson. I was uh, a lesson in business that like, I just had, I was underpricing myself, undervaluing myself. Still, I'm doing that today with my consults. Uh, I spend two, three hours if I think a dog is in trouble, just constantly on emails with the middle of the night, you know, stuff that you just know you should not be doing after 20 years of work. And uh, and I am, you know, when as if you would ever get your vet on a text message, you know what I mean? Email them and get an answer back 10 minutes later. What am I doing? I'm still doing it. So I think maybe it's an Irish thing. I think maybe I undervalue myself a bit. I think a lot of people do that. It's hard to jump your prices up a little bit and, and feel comfortable doing it. So, yeah, that was one of my biggest lessons because it cost me my raw dog food business and left me 80,000 euro in the hole. And so I came out of that demoralized and I was like, how did that fail? Like, I don't understand that. And ultimately it didn't fail. Now I could move the company sideways. I, I jumped into bed with somebody that could make my product for me, but I failed making it myself. And that, that stung a little bit, but it was a business lesson. It's like, um, it's this is how business works, you know, and you have to understand that companies like I've seen a lot of good companies, good products go 
to the side and, and fold because they weren't charging enough. They weren't getting paid enough by the public. The public want good food, organic, locally produced, but they don't want to spend the money on it. They won't pay you because they've got supermarkets that sell the stuff so much cheaper and that sort of stuff always wins. And um, so, yeah, I thought that was one of my biggest lessons kind of other than that, it's constantly reaching out to people. Every time I've reached out to somebody, they have, they've answered me. They've answered my call. I've had coffee or a pint with them and they've helped me so much. So, I do that for other people. If somebody ever asked me my time, I would sit down and talk to them. And a number of times it's worked out really well for me because I've given them my time and I realized, you know, he was a solicitor and I needed advice. And then I contact him and go, Dave, do you remember you said that uh, you'd help me out about a month ago? And I said, it turns out I do need your help. Can I get your opinion on something? So, uh, yeah, just that that little monk was an interesting story, but uh, really it's to help people have given me to get to here is, 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 is a lesson. You just need to kind of, don't think you can do it on your own because you, you, you can't, you really can't, you know. So lucky, get some support around you, you know, definitely. So, so what do you think is your superpower? Jesus, where are you getting these questions from? Um, well, what's my superpower? I think I can talk. I think I can, I think I can, uh, I think I am relatively uh, sentient. I think I think I have a decent mix of wanting to help, you know, uh, being able to talk to people no matter who they are. I don't, I don't overly respect anyone and I never uh, sell anyone short. So I would treat everybody the same. I don't care if it was a president sitting beside me, a priest, a homeless person. Uh, I don't give a damn who it is. So I got that from my dad, you know, he, just like everybody was the same. He would say the same stuff to no matter who he met because nobody is above or beneath you. So I think I have a good dose of that from my dad uh, and I have a serious work ethic from the way I was brought up and probably trying to impress my mum or something, I'm sure if some psychologist got their hands on me. So I think uh, I think a lot of that comes out to the front and that's kind of helping me. Like I, I am not going to stop, you know, uh, and that kind of helps me. I don't know if it's much of a superpower. It just sounds like I'm a bloody drone. It just sounds like <laughs> I will just keep working until I fall over. Um, no, I think if you, you meet a lot of people and they're kind of, you know, they're, you, you talk to them and you kind of, you know, you say, okay, good luck, buddy. But you, I don't know. There's a lot of bullshit in the pet kingdom. A lot of bullshit. A lot of clicky people. And it's just like, I don't have any time for any of that. I don't engage in any of it. Um, what's my superpower? Jesus, I don't know. I can't think of a really good answer for that. But definitely working with people. Um, I don't know if people can work with me too easy because I'm a loner. I work by myself. So I really don't know. It's a good question. I'm going to have to rehearse a better answer for that one. What's your superpower, Amos? I think I, I don't know. I think I listen. I listen. listen. That's I listen. good. I that's listen. a good one. Shit, that's a good one. I wish I said that. <laughs> that's a good one. Damn. Okay, I'll use that in future. But, um, you know, you... Once you wrote the book and you got it, you know, you finally got it published, getting it published, how was that? What was that like? Oh, I self-published it. Now it makes me sound shit. I self-published that book. Like there was really no way I was going to get anybody to publish that book too easily. They would make me take the tone out of it. Uh, I It had a lot more curse words in it before, it before my second copy editor. I got past the first one. And I said, look, this is the way I want this book. I want people to be able to understand. I don't want to dumb it down, you know, tough look if it's too hard for you in places, but like, I'm not going to dumb it down, but I am going to write it in a way that people can understand it, even if they have to take a paragraph by paragraph, cup of tea by cup of tea. And so uh, I think I went a little bit too far at one stage. I probably had used um, a couple of curse words too much. I can't help it. And uh, so it was never the, the tone of it. Also, this third section, which goes on about um, Big Pharma, and, and really some freedom of information requests and very hairy topics that land people in court. Yeah. Because I'm a researcher, I back up every single thing I say. I don't leave myself exposed. I had two barristers go through it that cost me four and a half thousand euro. Uh, but no publisher was going was gonna to take that up too easy. It was a hot potato, particularly that third section. So well, a few things were going against me. I was in a rush. Uh, I, I, I had a baby being born. And my second kid and I said like I cannot look at this project anymore it was just ruining my life I was lying awake at night working to four in the morning getting up at seven or eight and it was it was killing me so I kind of decided this has to be out in 2020 I had broken so many deadlines so 
really by midway through 2020 i had no hope in getting a publisher i still had to bloody do so much with the book and i was like so by the time i got it out at 20th of december at the end of 2020 and so it, and i had a few mistakes in it so i had rejigged it then early january but ultimately i had to get that off my desk so i could have the second kid and just switch off for a couple of weeks which i couldn't do and uh, yeah so I, I self-published it i didn't do that myself either i got a publisher and paid them to help me self-publish it so because they've already done the work they know how uh, you know amazon works self-publishing the tri- tips and tricks you need to know before you do it so if you do it yourself completely you have editing and formatting and stuff for every different type of print on demand service around the world and it's oh my god so i just paid this publisher a lump of money and she did a ferocious amount of work for me but she was so helpful uh, so I created my own publishing company and that's going to help now because I'm, while I promised I would never write another book, I would never write another factual reference manual like that again. But my next one will be a bit more just me writing and I don't have to back up the studies. I'll just say, look, if you want to see the science, I've already written the book and you won't read that. So now take my opinion in a book. So I might think my second book will just be a bit more of what I would have written the first time if I didn't have to get that book out. Um, so now I have the publishing company. I don't have to think about it. publishing company. It's nothing. I mean, anybody can do it in a day, but it sounds very fancy. So I'm my own publisher because nobody else will touch me. But it means you get to keep all the margin as well. You see, I had a following. I had already built up a few tens of, I don't know, 30, 25, 30,000 people on Facebook. But I already knew all the big people in the business. So I already was chatting to, you know, some of the biggest people in the, the, the Habib and uh, lots of people in the UK. I was already friends and doing work with them. So I didn't feel like I needed to, uh, what, could a, what could a publisher do for me? I already had the reach in this little community we're in. We often think we're in a big community, you know, but we're not. We're in a little niche. We're small and we think we're in a big pond, but we're not. And so I already knew the biggest people in that. I don't need a publisher to put it on a bookshelf. No one's going to buy my book off a bookshelf. The Forever Dog will sell off a bookshelf. That's more targeted at the, at the, at the, at the public. Mine was targeted at raw nerds. And you only find them online, you know, yeah. so um, I already had a reach to them. So that's why I did it myself. So if anybody was ever thinking about writing their own book or little ebooks, even yourself, Amherst, no matter what you're doing, if you have anything that you have to offer or wrap up in a small little booklet, that's so handy just to, as, a, as, a, as a project, just to write what you think would be a handy little booklet for whatever subject you believe in and you pop it up on Amazon you don't do it to make money. You just do it to have it there. And suddenly you're the person with a book and people go, oh, he has a book. He's very smart. You know, it's like, geez, I published it myself. It's not that. But nobody asked those questions. So suddenly you're this guy with a book and people want to talk to you for a little while. So, um, but it's good. And, and eBooks online with Amazon are a real powerful kind of tool because you can just give them out to people for free. You can put live links inside them. Um, so they're kind of a cool little tool that people are starting to use. They're a very popular product these days. And then you can say, look, if you had a website, you can say, look, I'll give you my ebook for nothing. It's really high quality. It's been sold on for five. You can refer in your email address, which is a classic uh, technique for kind of getting people to engage with you and, and harvest some emails, which I just read about there last month. And I thought that was ingenious. But um, yeah, so I, I do it myself. Anyway, I don't deal with publishers, no. So what 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 are you doing Um post book <laughs> um, post book uh, the few months after that from december january had the kid february march april you're you're just trying to promote the book as much as you can you're talking to as many amorous as you can find and you are you writing stuff but like i have a I have a website that I'm revamping at the moment. It used to be extremely busy. I used to have hundreds of thousands of people reading that website, but Google changed its algorithms over years. So I used to make a pretty good income from selling my supplements, my range of supplements here, and uh, and from people reading my articles. So that was good income from me, and Google whoosh, pulled the carpet away on that one. So I've been working on getting that back up to speed. Uh, since COVID has taken away my ability to do seminars i was flying around the world doing seminars like everywhere but singapore i mean singapore could have been on the cards two years ago but i was i was everywhere i was going all sorts of places and meeting the coolest of people and i could be in switzerland and then i could be in taiwan having a point with kids there. and it's like this is just the best ever meeting incredible people and then that was taken away but what i've done is i've taken those 10 or 15 different seminars that i've done really the book essentially but i've done it in webinars so i'm putting that up on my website so at the moment, building that website, it's like 
no longer going to be around the place. I have a problem with carbon now and thinking about carbon all the time. And it's like, oh, Jesus, I'll just put the webinars up on the website and just a very small pay-per-view and say, look there, if you want to help me with my research, then check out my seminar. There's, you know, 60 minutes, 90 minutes of me chatting about something send you a few pdfs after it and uh so i like that idea so that's taking up all my time at the moment uh the book doesn't take up my time but you know that you have a constant small revenue stream from that which is handy i've got my supplements that take a little bit of nurturing you've got stockers of them i write for different companies two or three companies so that takes up a bit of time i've got raw pet medics on facebook on tuesday nights that takes up a bit of time now we're getting a podcast going off that so there's kind of four or five, maybe six. There's a couple of other things that you help products get off the ground now, but you don't have to be up the front for going, oh, buy this food. But <laughs> you you are in the background and you can help them and you can kind of say, look, you know, you can pay me as a consultant because I'm very smart now and I've got, I've been in manufacturing and I've got a book. And so that works for a little while while people remember you have a book. And so you can ride the back of that for a little bit. So I'm finding that I'm in a little bit of demand to help people formulate products get companies off the ground i know all the failure points and you know what people are looking for what way the market's going so i'm strong in all that now so uh you can work with companies as well so that is good income because you can set them up set them off on the right foot so that brings in quite a good good income at the moment so i spend a bit of time doing that but mainly it's the website and webinars dominating my head i cannot wait till that is finished because i'm just you know, when you've got something that you need to do and you just keep doing everything else but that one thing. Yeah. And it just, it sits on your inbox and you're looking at it going, Jesus, please, like ring this person. You know, I'd have that on and I'd move it every day to the next day. Ring Alan, ring Alan, ring Alan. And I don't do it. And it's like, and it stresses me out in bed going, will you just ring Alan? It'll take five minutes. It's not even a difficult phone call, but I get it in my head and I don't do it. Anyway, Jesus, I shouldn't have gone off on you there, but uh, no, yeah, no, 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 it's good. Yeah. I, it just, no, it, it, it's actually very insightful in the way you're thinking and how you work, actually. You know, <laughs> yeah. what, what, what you're sharing, you know, I find it very, very yeah. fascinating, but I'm yeah. a nerd in that sense. Um, yeah. So with, with everything that you're doing now, um, if you could change one thing that you did in the past, what would it be? Well, I have, I have, I definitely have an honest answer for that that I couldn't really give you. But you look, you look back and you've tried. I've tried a lot of things, you know, and some things work and some things don't. And uh, one of my biggest things didn't work because I stepped too quickly into that relationship and you can't uh once once it sets off in motion it becomes very difficult to get out of it so i had some very very painful lessons in business um most of them could be summed up with my naivety i was getting in with people that weren't naive as i was so i get in with this i i i, I kind of i think i'm a good judge of character i don't know if i am i think as time gets on i would have spent the last 10 years saying i'm an incredible judge of character I don't know why I just always thought that was my superhero skill actually now did you say it I was a great instant judge of character I could smell a bullshitter from a mile away I don't mind a bullshitter I think they're quite fun to be around as long as they know they're a bullshitter if they don't know they're a bullshitter I don't like those people that just annoys me um so but no I, I turns out I'm a little bit naive as well and I think I probably often kind of give away too much sometimes you know and again it comes down to the kind of not pricing yourself right but I had a very, very expensive lesson in business that was not my fault, but um, I can't say any more about that because it just doesn't doesn't look good. But um, that that's the only, what can you change? You can't change anything. I, I keep telling people like, when they come to raw food, they look back on their pet that's really sick and they go, Jesus, I did that to him. It's like, I fed him the dry food I and caused that sickness, you know? And in a tiny way, they're right. But in a far more accurate way, you would say, no, like life is about what you know up to that point and I did my very best for you dog up until that point and if I learned something the very next day I went oh no carbohydrates I gave it to him when he had cancer and I finished him too quickly well like that's there's no point in kicking yourself about that because at the time I was making every decision I could with the best of intentions and I think that's all you can kind of do so I've made so many mistakes now but I really don't kick myself over them I um 
that I can think of. I, I don't. It's like every single time I did it, I was under the kibosh. I had to make a move. Um, you know, I trusted the guy or that was a friend or, you know, you can look back and go, oh, that was stupid. But look, you know, what can you do? You make a decision at that time. It's usually at the time the best possible decision you can make. And then in time, you realize, actually, that was a pretty shit decision. But you go, look, what can you do? At the time, it was the right one. And not all of them are going to work out. That's just what, that's what happens, you know. So, but I don't kick myself over. Um, I do kick myself over some things maybe in life, but business-wise and what we're talking about here, that kind of stuff, never. It's like, look, you, you learn and you get better and you accept your mistakes. And like Edison says, I've learned a thousand ways how not to make a light bulb. That's what this black box thinking book did for me. It's kind of like everything is based on mistakes. Every bit of improvement you make is based on mistakes. Every game you lost in sport, everything you do, every love lost and all that crap was some mistake you made. And so don't beat yourself up about it. Just go, well, it's not going to happen that way again. And if it doesn't, you know, hey, ho. So um, I think there was a great story from a guy in South Africa. He cost IBM like millions and millions of dollars because, I don't know, he put in a seven where it should have been an eight or something, something tiny. And they said, so did you fire him? And he goes, fire him? He goes, it just cost me millions to train him. I'm not going to fire him. He's never going to make that mistake again. You know, and I thought, that's brilliant, you know? So I don't really beat myself up. So what would I change? I don't know. Uh, I don't, I really don't know. Uh, I think I took it too seriously for too long. I invested too much time in things, you know, and, um, but I'm really happy with the way things have turned out now. So maybe it wouldn't have happened if I didn't work so hard, so... I really don't know what I changed. I don't know. Nothing so far. What about you? Well, I think like you, I used to think, oh my God, I made so many mistakes in my life because, you know, I'm just that kind of person, you yeah. know. Um, but now I actually realized if it wasn't for the fact that I made all these mistakes, yeah. I wouldn't be the person that I am today. Exactly. Exactly. You know? Yeah. And yeah. there's yeah. actually this Latin phrase that I, I actually really like a lot. It's called amor fati. Oh, yeah. It's, you know, uh, the love of life. You embrace life, oh, the cool. good and the bad. Yeah. Because if it, ah, wasn't good. For, if it wasn't for the bad, you wouldn't be, you wouldn't be, yeah. you, you wouldn't be here. Yeah. Yeah. You know? I like that. I'm going to, that's good. Uh, yeah. It's like when they say, you know, you've got these peaks and, and, and troughs and it's like, you don't know you're on a peak until you've been in a trough, you yeah. know? So it's like, you got to have that. You got to have yeah. that balance. And this Facebook kind of life we need to lead it for. It's like, click, here's me and my happy family. <laughs> you didn't see the last 23 and a half hours where we're screaming. Exactly. At each other. You know exactly. What I mean? Yeah. So, you know, so for me, it's like every single fuck up in my life yeah. has led me to this moment today. Yeah. And yeah. I used to be very immature. I still am, you know, and, and very yeah, shallow, I which I still am. And judgmental, yeah. which I still am, but a lot more in the past. And, you know, yeah. I was a really judgy bitch. And I just yeah. realized, um, you know, if I want to grow, I've got to let go. Yeah. And I just yeah. have I like to, that. you know, and I have to actually, you know, embrace what's and all of me. Yeah. Yeah. That's that, that, that is me. That's a fact. Yeah. That's that is me. You know, yeah. that, that, that is something that will help me grow. And, yeah. Yeah, I you like know, that. so I, I really really love and 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 cherish this conversation with you because you know you've been so open and and candid about about everything that you shared you know and you've humored me so well because you know i'm 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 such a brat <laughs> asking <laughs> yeah. you all these questions yeah they're awful questions but, i know uh, they're brilliant they're good questions but it's much more fun than like you know People have heard people talking about dogs all the time. And uh, like I said, it gets a bit serious. It's way more fun just to be chatting. Everyone likes talking about themselves. You know, you can never ask enough questions <laughs> about the about the actual person. So it's, a, it's good. Uh, yeah, people people keep the financial stuff and stuff in the secret. And it's like, uh, oh, that's bullshit. Who cares? You know what I mean? I, I personally don't need a lot of money at all. I, I can exist on very, very little cash. Always have. So it's just a habit now. But like I, I was influenced by another guy who wrote the four hour work week, Tim Ferriss, and he was making this point saying, look, you don't need more than whatever, let's say 100K a year because the tax man's going to take half it here. You need about 50,000 euro a year. So it's best it comes from three or four sources. But he says after that, money becomes a complete ball and chain. You stay in jobs you don't like because you have a bit more money, but it's ruining your life. You know, you take on extra time and, and at night time, but it's not improving your life at all. You're ruining that bit of time. You could have been 
sitting on your arse and watching this TV, you know? So I think uh, anything above a certain amount of money is a bomb. If my car was newer, if my bloody coat was made by a different manufacturer, it's all utter bullshit to keep you on this hamster wheel of misery because the biggest memories, the best memories are walking the dog down the beach. Do you know what I mean? Hanging out with my mates cost you absolutely nothing. All those memories you have of your parents, if they pass, they're never of anything involving cash ever. You know what I mean? So, uh, so I'm very, I, I have that in my head. I, I had a couple of experiences as a kid, like, you know, a friend of mine died when I was very young and, and, um, and, and a couple of kind of calamities that kind of teach you from a very young age, like, you know, bloody life is short, you know, get on with it and, uh, you know, quit whinging about it, accept the, so, accept the good and the bad, move on. So who, who would you say inspires you? Oh, yeah. Who inspires you all this time? All this time. Uh, uh, I don't know. I, I, I could change from day to day. I would I would meet somebody. I'd meet a friend doing something pretty cool. And I go, Jesus, that is so understated he never said a word about that but he's going through that what a rock star i could meet somebody in business um i could read somebody's book and go jesus how could you ever put such, together such a cool book um i'd love to appreciate poetry and if i did i'm pretty sure i would think those poets are amazing artists i'm not mad into art but when i see your picture that you're using as a background i think that's such a slick picture um like i don't know you know my wife you know working hard and doing her thing and very understated with it whereas i probably wouldn't be if i was in her position she's in a great position um so i but but again it's my lack of my lack not respect my lack of um i don't hold anybody higher than me and i don't hold them any be so i i don't kind of i'd meet people and be very impressed by them and want to talk with them and go out for a meal and a pint with them so that happens to me all the time but i don't kind of hold them up there and go you know god status I think um, maybe the first time I talked to Karen Becker and Rodney Habib, I had to admit to Rodney Habib, who I've got a good relationship with now. I mean, we're, we're good mates. But I said, I cannot believe that I'm a bit nervous talking to you. <laughs> I was so embarrassed at myself. I was so disappointed. And I think he liked it. And I just said, I was just like, oh, Jesus, Habib. Like, I was actually nervous. Can you believe that talking to you? And he's very similar to me. Like, we get on, we get on really well. But so, okay, fair enough. If you meet a big movie star, your heart beats, you know, of course that's going to happen. But other than that, I don't put anybody on a pedestal, really. I think everyone's gone through their own shit. Some people are good at things. Some people are bad. You just need to listen to them, you know, as you said, and just get to know them. And you realize they're all doing cool shit when you when you talk to them. So, um, yeah, again, another wishy-washy answer to a, to a good question. Generally, the good questions get wishy-washy answers <laughs> because I haven't thought of them enough. I will think of them now later on. But anyway, yeah. Well, you know, I, I want to thank you because we've crossed the hour and yeah. it's it's getting quite dark now on your side. Yeah, so I've got my kids up now. Yeah, so I just I just really want to thank you for your time. And actually, on behalf of all pet parents around the world, thank you for writing this book, this baby ah, of yours awesome. for 10 years. Um, yeah. It's a wonderful book. And I definitely hope to put more books in the hands of other vets that in Singapore as well and to promote yes. the work that you're doing. Yeah, so, yeah. Well, like I said, much. like I said, I appreciate that. Like I said at the start, if I can help you out that, with that, I will. I, we need to do more of this. Uh, I see Habib is doing that very well with his book that they, they're good at promotion and getting it into people's hands because it's only when people know better they do better so we can't be too cynical if we're not actually putting the information in their hands it's not like vets are on Facebook at night time engaging in these forums that we are so you can't really blame them they're they're slumped after work so like uh, so yeah it's, it's so good that you're doing that so look it takes uh, it takes millions doesn't it so um, so it's it's we're all we're all doing our own little bit so uh, so thanks thanks for getting the book and thanks for passing on the message I appreciate it Okay. Well, um, all the best and blessings yes, to you and absolutely. your family. Yes. Cheers. You too, Amherst. And we'll hopefully talk to you again soon. All right. Okay. Thank you. See you later. Bye-bye. Wow. I'm so thankful and grateful that you took the time to listen to this podcast. It would mean the world to me if you could subscribe, download, rate, review, and share this with others whom you care about that may enjoy it as well. Thank you. And remember to be kind to yourself and others. Have a awesome day, everyone.